You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter 3 and also John chapter 1. Genesis 3 and John 1. We've been in a series for several weeks now uh, called Emo Church. And basically what Emo Church is, it's a series on becoming an emotionally healthy church. And this is not therapeutic, a therapeutic sermon series trying to make you feel good. I think we all can attest that many of us, since the advent of this series, you probably have not felt particularly good about yourself. The series is about health. It's not necessarily about feeling good. It's about bringing health to the most neglected parts of the Christian life. And I think one of the most neglected parts of the Christian life is our emotional health. Emotions are tumultuous. We feel so many different emotions at different times in different places, and it's hard to trust our emotions or to trust our feelings. I remember reading early on in my life with Jesus uh, the writings of C.S. Lewis. And what he says in Mere Christianity, that we have to know when to tell our feelings, our emotions, where to get off. We have to know where to tell our emotions, okay, take the exit, no more, I'm not going to trust you anymore. And I agree with that, but our emotions are a part of who we are. Our emotions are often symptoms of a bigger problem that lay deep within. Emotions are like a burp. Now, I know that's disgusting, so don't tweet that ever, but they, they, are, they bring to the taste buds what's deep within. And that's what emotions do. I know it's graphic. You'll never forget that, though, I promise. You'll never forget that. But what if we went into those emotions? What if we learned what our emotions were trying to tell us about what we really believe? Because I think a lot of our emotions, if we get down to them, they come from things that we believe about ourselves, about the world, about God. What if we got deep down and go, okay, what is that, where, where, where is that fear coming from? What do I believe about myself? What do I believe about the world? What do I believe about God? What about the root of the anger or bitterness or loneliness or anxiety? It's not just enough to go, okay, I'm anxious. How do I be unanxious right now? I'm fearful. How do I be unfearful right now? It's way more than that. It's actually going down and going, what, what, where's that coming from? What do I believe about the world? What do I believe about God? This is what we've been trying to do over the last several weeks. And as I've been hearing from a lot of your community groups, a lot of them, there's a bit of unraveling, and this is a good thing, even though it might not feel like a good thing. You might have been experiencing the last three to four weeks some of the most trying times in your life, and it's like God is keeping us in a place where we have to deal with a lot of our emotions, and it's good. We said this a couple weeks ago. It's not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. It's not possible for us to say we are spiritually mature, but we're emotionally infants. Our emotions are tied to our spirituality. And I will admit that for much of my Christian life, emotional health has been a very neglected discipline for me personally, especially in the area that I want to talk about today. Today, I want to talk about receiving the gift of limits. I don't like this sermon. Um, 
So if you have a Bible, Genesis chapter 3, let me read the the first few verses and let me pray. Verse 1. Now the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And the snake said to the woman, the serpent said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the snake, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not even touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit was, of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the series and this place that you have us all in, myself included, and we submit um, this time together. We just really want to receive whatever it is that you have. I know that I cannot manufacture something by the end of the sermon. The worship team at the end, as we respond, you can't manufacture something through playing certain chords or certain song selections. We just want to receive what you have. And that's what we're all here today to do together. We've, we've set aside this time, Lord, just to receive as people that are limited in time and space. We can only be one place here. We want to receive what you have. And so, God, I pray that you would use me, anoint me. I need your help desperately, God, especially in the area of my weakness, which is this. And so, would you teach us today? In Jesus' name, amen. Lately, um, I've been suffering panic attacks. I don't know if you ever had a panic attack, um, where you feel like your chest is about to cave in and you can't breathe and um, you can't control it. You almost feel like you have a heart attack, like part of your body goes numb, that sort of thing. Uh, if you've never had one, they're very painful, and uh, that's why they're called an attack, I think. Um, and uh, they're scary. And I don't even know why, uh, well, I know why, the, why they started coming on. I think it's, it's because of what we're talking about today. I think I, I reached um, a point in my own life where I hit a wall and on a limit, and my body's like, dude, you're at your limit. And God's like, dude, you're at your limit. And I'm like, I'm not in my limit yet. I can keep doing. Other people have done this. Other people have done what I, more than I, what, I can, what I'm doing right now. I, I can push through it and keep doing it. And I reached a limit where doing too much um, will cause my body, and maybe you've experienced this too, cause your body to fail. Now, so today I'm teaching from a place of vulnerability. Not a place that, like, look at what I found out, what I've been doing for the last seven years. Um, The other part of it is that, to be completely vulnerable with you, I don't like topical sermons. Um, We don't normally do topical sermons here. It's a very special thing that we're doing on a book. We've never really taught through an extra-biblical book before. And so I feel like, approaching this sermon, I've hit another limit. Like, dude, you shouldn't be teaching topically, because I'm just not, I don't like it. Um, So I dread Easter every year. It's like topical. And uh, I'd rather just go, what's the verse that we have to teach on? I'll teach on that verse. That's, that's what I want to do. Um, so that's another limitation. So I'm like coming up against all my limits while teaching on limits. And God's like, gotcha. So, um, <laughs> and Genesis, so I, I guess all I'm saying is I'm teaching from a place of vulnerability. And I kind of say that to you at the very beginning to relieve some tension even in my own soul right now. 
so I don't feel like I have to like say something that blows your mind. I can just t- t- tell you what God has been doing in my life recently through this topic as I've been living through it uh, for the last almost year now as we've been going through it, but especially the last couple weeks preparing for the sermon. In Genesis chapter 3, and the reason why I read that to open is that the Christian faith believes that God created everything. Everything that we see, the book of Hebrews says, was made by what is unseen. The how and when is not really answered in the first couple chapters of Genesis. And when you read Genesis, a lot of people might be turned off by that in this room going, oh, here it goes again. You're going to teach me about this, about science, and that about science. Well, I don't really believe that Genesis necessarily is a science manual. I think the answer, the question that Genesis 1 and 2 is answering is not so much how, but who. Who did all this? And it's clear that God created everything. We are created beautifully. This world was created intricately by God. And God placed Adam and Eve, our primordial parents, in the Garden of Eden. And in, the, in Eden, it was perfect. There was shalom, is the Hebrew word. There was harmony. Everything was perfect. This is how the Christian and the Jewish story begins. Not in a God with God and humanity at odds, but at peace. Not with humanity and the environment at odds, but at peace. Not with humanity and humanity at odds with itself, but peace. But here's the question that has baffled so many people. This is the question that if you are studying the book of Genesis in a small group or you've studied apologetics at all, this is the question that everyone asks. Why the tree? Why is the tree there? If you've been reading Genesis 1 and 2 and you get to chapter 3 and it talks about the tree that God says do not eat from, you might step back and go, why did God, can I just ask you one question, why the tree? If you took the tree away, then they wouldn't have eaten from it. If they wouldn't have eaten from it, we don't have to have the rest of the Bible. Like it ends. (laughs) And we're all in the garden still naked and great. It's awesome. Why are we not there right now? Why the tree? If you just didn't put the tree there, you would have no problems at all. Now, what was the nature of this tree? Did the tree glow or something? Was it special? Did it look special? Was it surrounded by really cool, like, sensual music? And it was, like, like pulsating and, like, dancing or something? And you're like, I, I can't resist the tree. Like, the tree is just so attractive. I, whatever. Like, it was, was that, is that what the tree, what was this tree? Why the tree? I think Francis Schaeffer, who is a theologian and philosopher, he says it best when he says, God has not made a bad tree. He has simply made a tree. And there is nothing intrinsic about the tree that is different in any way from the other trees. Rather, God has simply confronted man with a choice. He could just just as well said, don't cross this stream or don't climb this mountain. He is saying, believe me and stand in your place as a creature. Not as one who is autonomous. Believe me and love me as a creature to his creator and all will be well. This is the place for which I have made you. What the tree did was confront Adam and Eve, which was humanity at that time. The tree confronted humanity with God's authority and their limitation. I am God I am the creator, you are the created. I am the potter, you are the clay. I am infinite, you are finite. Do not eat this tree. 
and do not eat from this tree. Know your limits. Live within my God-given limits for you. The tree was in the garden to ask the question to humanity, will you trust me and surrender to my goodness? Will you trust me and surrender to my goodness? Will you live under the limitation of being human and receive it as a gift? You are human, you are created. Will you take your humanity and receive your humanity to yourself as a gift and go, I will live into my createdness, my creatureliness, and I will be dependent on God and I will trust you, God. Will you do that? And when you look at the nature of the temptation, these questions become even more clear. The serpent, who is, we're told later, is the devil. Genesis 3, 4 says, this is what the serpent said. He asked, eat the tree. And she's like, I can't eat the tree. If we eat it, we'll die. And he says, you will not surely die. You won't die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You'll throw, you're, you're blind right now. You can't see all that's out there. You can't see all, all the wonderfulness that is the world. You, you're, you're blinded. You're limited in your ability to see. Your eyes will be open when you eat the tree. You'll be unlimited when you eat the tree. And you will be like God when you eat the tree, knowing good and evil. Now the horrible irony here. Well, the temptation was you get to be like God. But the, the, the horrible irony of this whole thing was that they were already like God. Eve could have said, um, actually, we're already like God because we're made in his image. Done. Into the Bible. Could have ended there too. <laughs> we're already made in the image of God. We're made like God. We are made in his image, so we are like God. But that wasn't really the question. You could be like God. The question that the serpent was giving to Adam and Eve was, do you want to be your own God? Do you want to judge for yourself what is good and evil. Don't trust him to tell you what's good and evil. That's too limited. Don't trust in his commandments. Don't trust in his ways. Do your own thing. Live your own way. Do you want, do you want to know for yourself what's good? Do you, know what, you want to know for yourself what's evil? What's, what's, if you're reading the, the narrative, God keeps calling everything good in the narrative. God's like, he saw it, he created it, it was good. He saw it, he created it, it was good. And what the serpent gives to Eve is, do you want to, do you want to know what's good by yourself without God? Do you want to make up your own good? Do you want to live by your own rules? That was the temptation. Do you want to judge for yourself what is good and evil? Do you want to come out from the limitations that this so-called God is placing you under? Do you want true freedom? Do you want to live life without limits? How many of you grew up hearing the words from your parents or teachers or the media? Things like this. You can be Anything you want to be. Your, your mom and dad raised you and they just told you when you were a little baby, yeah, you could be anything you set your heart to. Anything you set your mind to, you could do anything. You can be all you can be. If you set your heart to it, you can be anything. We grew up on movies like Aladdin. saying a whole new world. We just get on our magic carpet and we can go anywhere. We, sang, we grew up on like the Little Mermaid song where she's singing under the sea, but not under the sea, this is a different song, but, and if, she's, and if I start singing the song, my wife will just, she might just take over somewhere in the room, I don't know where she's at. <laughs> Did you guys grow up in Little Mermaid? Probably not, I'm, I'm too old, a little, it's like five of you, okay. More than that, okay, good. Where she's singing, up where they walk, up where they run, up where they, you wanna sing it, don't you? <laughs> we can have a sing-along right now. 
Up where they play all day in the sun. Wandering free, wish I can be. Yeah, you know. You cannot not finish that, that song. She wants to be part of that world. Like she's in there, she's like, I want to be part of that world. And now this new generation has grown up on a movie like Frozen. And I, can not, I won't sing that one, that's too catchy. But the song Let It Go, which will probably win best song tonight in the Oscars. And this is a lyric from the song. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Now, of course, like all good, these are all good, I'm not, it's, not my, my, it's not a rant against Disney, okay? If you're like, yes, Disney, go get them. Pass. No, that's not what this is. <laughs> like all good movies, most of these movies have a narrative of sacrificial love, like Frozen does. But the songs that everyone takes from these films and sticks in our heads is we can live life with no limits. Let's throw off all the limits. Did you guys see this ad from the Olympics this last week um, or the last couple weeks? This is probably the coolest ad. I just, I, I, I've told you before, I, I love advertisements and the fact that I like what they picture. And this is one of my favorite ones. This was all over the Olympics this last, the last couple weeks. Sarah Hendrickson, the, first, and the Olympics just opened up um, uh, ski jumping as Olympic sport to women. And so Visa capitalized on this and created this ad. This ad is just beautiful because she's flying. That's why it's cool. She's flying, and it's just, pick, it's just a perfect shot of her. Like, you don't see anything else. All you know, she can be, like, as high as an airplane. She's just flying in the air, and it just says this ad right here. It says, everywhere you want to be. Visa, everywhere you want to be. Like, but I, I, want, I want to fly. Yeah, get a visa. <laughs> like, where do you want to go? And, and the commercial, if you've seen the commercial, it was Amelia uh, Earhart's voice over talking about how her, like, there's nothing more free than flying. And so they connected these two. You want freedom? You want to fly? Get a visa. <laughs> I think this is a great ad. I mean, not the, the fact that it's selling a credit card or whatever. But it's like, do you want to go anywhere? Do you want to go everywhere? The sky, you want to fly? Sky, the sky's the limit. It's really what it's saying is the only limit that we have is our credit card limit. That's the only limit that we have. <laughs> but every other limit, just break through every other limit you have. Now, this is not a rant, again, against Disney or credit cards, though one is warranted. This is, this is a message. There's this message out there that says the universe and I am without limits. Given enough energy and commitment on my part, I can be anything I want to be and do anything I want to do if I'm willing to work for it. I can be anything. And so people move from all over the globe to cities like San Francisco to make it, to throw off limits and limitations and go, I'm going to move to this city and be everything I wanted to be. See, for us, freedom is defined by being limitless in all directions and in all times. Freedom is limitless in all directions at all times. I can do anything I want, anytime I want to do it. But this doesn't bring freedom, it brings bondage. It brings in things like covetousness, where we want someone else's life always. We're never happy with our own lives. Even if our startup gets acquired, but there's someone that got acquired for more. 
Even if we reach the pinnacle in our art form, someone is better. We live life of envy. We're never happy in our own skin. We try to purchase an identity like Visa makes us and what makes us do. We try to find an identity or we try to make an identity. This also brings, I think this is more important than the other one, this also brings lostness. I know that's not a word, but pastors can make up words. <laughs> this also brings up a lostness in us where we don't know who we are. Recently, the most comprehensive study of religious beliefs of American teens and young adults ever conducted was completed, and the findings put it in two books by Christian Smith. In his research, he found that our cultural theology can be summed up by the phrase moralistic therapeutic deism. He says, you know how whatever, don't read ahead, I knew it. Here, eyes up here. He said, it could, this, is how, this is how cultural theology can be summed up in America, in the West, pretty much. For, young, for teenagers and then emerging adults. So everywhere between you know, teenage to, to mid to late 30s. It's therapeutic, uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. And this is how we define what that means. And the, the, these are my loose sort of summaries of what uh, his five points. God exists who created the world and watches over human life. God does exist and God did create everything. Okay, they, it believes that. Most people believe that. God wants people to be good and nice. Like, you know what God wants? What does God want from us? We, he wants us to be good. He wants us to be nice to other people. Okay, he wants us to be fair. All right. The goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Now, before you read ahead, go down, go down deep. Like, what is your, like, goal in life? If we were just to say, I just want to be comfortable and I want to be happy, that's what, that's what I want. I want to be happy and comfortable, and I want to feel good about myself. That's what mo I would say probably most of us in this room, that's the goal uh, that we have in our life. We also think God is not really involved in our lives except when he is needed to resolve a problem. So we don't really think of God too much until our lives are going through it, and then we're like, God, I need you now. I need you to come and solve this problem that I have. That's where the deism part comes in. And good people go to heaven when they die. Like, if you're good, you'll go to heaven. So we have this moralistic, we have to do good things, therapeutic, my life's all about me feeling good, deism, God's there, but he's not really involved in my life, and he's involved in my life whenever I need him to be involved in my life, when my life hits the fan, but other than that, he's just there. And he kind of is involved in the, in the world, but not really involved in the world, because the world's too messed up anyway. He's not involved in every little detail. What this theology creates is a freedom to go and find yourself. So God doesn't tell us who we are really. We have to go and find that ourselves. We have to go to do what feels good, go do what feels right, and then we hit a bump in the road or we hit a wall. We go, God, why did I hit this wall? What's going on here? And God's like, well, do this. Like, okay, and then you keep going along on your way again. We're left to ourselves to find fulfillment and try to be happy, but rarely few people find it, and this is how he concludes. This is one of his conclusions. He says this. Emerging adults are determined to be free. And then he's writing about us. Emerging adults are determined to be free, but they do not know what is worth doing with their freedom. They work very hard to stand on their own two feet, but they do not really know where they ought to go and why once they are standing. They lack larger, larger visions of what is true and real and good. Many know that there must be something more and they want it. 
Many are uncomfortable with their inability to make truth statements and moral claims without killing them with, uh, with the death of a thousand qualifications. But they do not know what to do about that. Given the crisis of truth and values that has destabilized their culture. And so they simply carry on as best they can as sovereign, autonomous, empowered individuals who lack a reliable basis for any particular conviction or direction by which to guide their lives. What we've done is we, we, we dabble in everything. We go around, we're like, I'm free. What are you free for? I'm free to do whatever I want. What do you want to do? I don't know yet. I'm trying it all out. And by the time we're 50, we're like, I've lived 50 years. What have I done? Oh my gosh, what, what am I going to do with my life? Well, sometimes we hit that at 20. Sometimes we hit that at 25, 30. We've become our own gods, and we don't even know how to rule our own universe. And the reason why we don't know what to do with all this freedom that we're given is because we were never meant to be God. John Stott has famously said, for the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, saying, I will be God, I will live under complete and utter limitlessness, and I will do whatever I want, whenever I want to. That is, to me, is freedom. But that's bondage. The sin of our first parents, the sin of us today, is not living under our God-given limits and not seeing our God-given limits as a gift to be received. God-given limits are a gift to be received. You were created by God with both limits and potential. You were created by God with both limits and potential. To be really cliche, you are the only you that there is, but that you is now under certain limitations. You cannot, I'm, I, I, and this is why this sermon, you know, like, it's, doesn't, it's not a feel-good sermon. You cannot be anything you want to be. I'm sorry, you cannot. Even though technology and science might allow it, you cannot. You are given God-given limits that you are to receive as a gift. Not all of you will be CEOs because you don't have the capacity for it. God never had that in mind for you, but you really want to do that. And you want to go and you keep living in someone else's life, not your own life, except receiving the limits that you have. All of us are neurotically going on to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And I ask you, what thing are you going for? And we forget to be where we're at. Because we don't know how to live under our, and by we, I mean me too, our God-given limits. You were created by God with limits and potential, and for us to find our place in this world and to be emotionally healthy people, you must find where you're limited and where your potential is. You must find your limitations, and you must look at failures as like, God, are you limiting me? And if you are, thank you, and I embrace that limitation. You cannot just be anything you want to be. Part of what it means to be human is to rest in your own skin. Is to be centered. Is to be at peace within for how God made you and how he set limits on your own life personally. To embrace the limits 
of your own humanness, of your own nature. Parker Palmer writes in his book on vocation, he says this, everything in the universe has a nature, which means limits as well as potentials. A truth well known by people who work daily with the things of the world. Making pottery, for example, involves more than telling the clay what to become. The clay presses back on the potter's hands, telling her what it can do and cannot do, and if she fails to listen, the outcome will be both frail and ungainly. Engineering involves more than telling materials what they must do. If the engineer does not honor the nature of the steel or the wood or the stone, his failure will go well beyond aesthetics. The bridge or the building will collapse and put human life in peril. The human self also has a nature, limits as well as potentials. Have you ever th- asked yourself why, like, like good ecology, some places I thrive and some places I die? Have you ever bought a plant and put it in a certain part of your house and it died and you went and bought another one and put it in a different part of your house and it thrived? No, buy a plant, you should do that, maybe. <laughs> I found that, I like, like I've told you before, I like orchids, so orchids in certain parts of my house live and other parts of my house die. Where there is no natural light, they die. Where there is light and there's people moving and talking and it, it, it thrives. But whether it's like dark and dead, it dies. Like you, you are given certain limits and certain potentials where you thrive and where you die. And you need to receive those as gifts from God. You know, God, those are my limits and I can't push beyond my own limitations. I will live in the limits that you've given to me. Now, who I think is a beautiful example of this is John the Baptist. Now, why John the Baptist? And I think it's, what I love about this parallel between Adam and John the Baptist, Adam and even John the Baptist, is here is another man before creator God. Adam and Eve, mankind before creator God, Will they live into their limitations? Will they live in their potential? And the answer is no. And here's John the Baptist before Jesus Christ, who Hebrew says is creator God. And John the Baptist lives before Christ. And will John the Baptist live in his God-given limits and potentials? And so in John chapter 1, we see this. If you have your Bible open there, I'll join you right now. John chapter 1, verse 19. It says, Now this was John's testimony when Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. So John's out ministering. He's out baptizing. He goes before Jesus, and he has his whole ministry wrapped around making a way for the Messiah to come. And all these leaders and priests are like, Hey, who are you? Tell us who you are. Verse 20, He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, no, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He said, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am, it's better translated in Greek, I am a voice. I am a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. For For John the Baptist, his identity was wrapped around first who he was and who was not. 
He says in verse 26, I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one. You do not even know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Who are you? Are you this? Are you that? No, no, I'm not. This is, this is John the Baptist's identity. This is who he said he was. He first said, I am not. He defined himself by what he wasn't first. He says, I am not the Messiah. I am not Elijah. I am not the prophet. Now, these words might sound strange that John first finds his identity in what he's not. This is so important. In your limitations, it's so important for you to figure out what you're not. If you failed horribly in your life, if you're going through a failure now, let this teach you what am I not? I'm not. And let me receive that as a, as a limitation and as a gift. John's like, I'm not, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. There is as much guidance in what does not and cannot happen in life as there is in what can and does happen. I to, I've told you before that I used to work at a bank and I got fired and it was embarrassing because it was an entry-level job as a teller and I couldn't hold down that job. That's very embarrassing. And it's because I couldn't count money. That's even more embarrassing. <laughs> like it's just one and two and three. And I, when I go to the bank now, all you know, the automatic, when they type in the numbers and the machine spits out as much cash as you need, I think that's cheating, by the way. Like, if I had those machines, I wouldn't have got fired. Like, what's going on with that? <laughs> I realized at that, during that time in my life what I'm not. It was embarrassing. It was humiliating. But it also taught me humility. It also taught me I'm, that's not who I am. I have a friend of mine. Actually, you know him. He's, he's, he's spoken here a couple, uh, several times, Francis Chan, a good, a good friend of the church, good friend of mine. And he always laughs that the best thing that's ever happened to me was the fact that I did not go to seminary. And I, and I always would wear that like a wound. I would always wear that like sheepishly, like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't get to go to seminary. I wanted to, but I never had a chance. You know, whatever. Like, people walk up, oh, what seminary you go to? I'm like, um, none, like community college, like that was it. And, and I would always wear that as a, like a place of, um, maybe shame would be the right word if, I was, if we're gonna be emotionally healthy in here today. Um, <laughs> and, and he would, and when I would tell him, he was like, he would laugh and go, that's the best thing, that's the best thing for you. Like completely, the I, I would hate to see what would, your life would be like if you've gone through seminary. There's something that it did in you there's, there's, some, there's a passion and a hunger for knowledge that you don't, there's a passion and hunger to make things really simple, what everyone else makes really complex. Like, it's, it's a gift that you didn't. And I really appreciate him for making fun of me a lot through that, but also bringing the realization that, that like, I can live into that as a limit and it brings great, it can bring great potential. But then... Now, we don't just stop at what we're not. We move on to what we are. And so John says this, I am a voice. I am a voice. I'm not the voice. The voice is coming behind me. I'm a voice. I am a baptizer in water. But one's coming after me who's going to baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. And he goes, and I'm unworthy to, um, I am unworthy to untie even his sandals. That's who I am. And then if you move on, 
you realize that John knows who he is and who he's not, and then this happens, and this is just, this is what I've really been meditating on and what I wanted to share with you this morning, but I promise it won't take that long. Look at John chapter three, turn over a couple pages to the right. John chapter three. This is almost about the last we'll hear from John, the Baptist. In verse 22, it says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went out to the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John was baptizing at Anion near Siloam. I don't know how to say that, whatever. I didn't go to seminary. Because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. Okay, so what's happening right here is John is baptizing and what he's doing is he's making a way for the Lord. He's making a way for Jesus. And as every time that John sees Jesus, he says, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John's disciples start following Jesus. And John's numbers that were huge at the beginning started getting smaller and smaller. And Jesus' numbers are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And so John and Jesus were both baptizing. And John's crowd is shrinking. And Jesus' crowd is growing. And it says, an argument developed, verse 25, between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Everyone's using his app now. Everyone's using his thing now. Everyone's doing, look, everyone's going to him. And this is what John said. To this John replied, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. Please underline that if you have a physical Bible or if you have digital, whatever. Underline this. A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah. I am, I am sent ahead of him. The, bridge belongs to the, bri- the bride belongs to the bridegroom. A friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. This is John the Baptist receiving his selfhood. This is John the Baptist being completely comfortable in his skin. This is John the Baptist standing before creator God going, I will live in the limits that you've put upon my life. I will live underneath the limitations and the potential that you've given me, God. And so he says this. He says, a person can receive only what is given to them from heaven. This is limits. I am limited in my life, and I only can receive what God has placed in me to do. I can only receive what God has given me to do. That's it. I can do nothing else. I know Even in our Christian endeavors, we want to reach the world. We, we do. We're going to change the world. You can only change the world if God says, guess what? I'm going to change the world through you. If he does not, you cannot. So stop trying. Rest. John the Baptist's ministry was shrinking. His influence was shrinking. Soon enough, he'd be arrested and then beheaded. And what he says is this. God's given me limits and I'm going to live underneath them. But then he says this. I am not the Messiah. I was sent ahead of him. I'm not the Messiah. This is potential. You might not see that this is potential, but when you find out what you're not, it gives you great potential of what you are. I'm not the Messiah. I was actually sent here to prepare a way for him. 
and I'm going to rest in the fact that God has sent me here, and I fulfilled the thing he's called me to do, and I'm going to do the thing he's called me to do, and now Jesus' ministry is growing, and that's great because, look, he must become greater, and I must become less, and this was ultimate reality. Our life, the way that we live it, the way that we experience the Christian life should be lived. God, may you and may your glory and may your fame become greater and may I and maybe even my influence and maybe even my net worth become less and less. As long as you keep growing, God, and as long as you become bigger and bigger and bigger in my life, I will become less and less. And then this is the way to be truly human. I know that might sound weird, but Christ redeems our humanity and he allows us to go, I can live under God-given limitations again. Some of you guys are so restless because you're trying to make your way in the world. You're trying to prove yourself in the world. You see the world as this limitless open field and you don't know where to go and you're, you're paralyzed with fear. What if I make the wrong decision? God sent me here to tell you that you're not God. And the essence of sin is substituting yourself for God. But the quote continues by John Stott because he says, for the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be And God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. The the, the offer that's here, the good news, the Bible calls the gospel, that is open and free as, as this table is open and free for anyone who wants to receive it is to live under your limitations as a human and to repent of trying to be God and saying, God, I am not God, you are God. And the essence of my sin was trying to live limitlessly and trying to do everything myself. And I basically took you off the throne and put myself there. But the essence of salvation is God himself coming down, taking on our flesh and our bones and our blood and our skin and our anxiety and our worry and our fear and even our own limitations. Jesus lived under limitations. When he was being tempted and he was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights and Satan showed up to him and says, hey, see this rock? Turn into bread because you can do that. And Jesus said, I will live under my human limitations. I will not do that. Jesus took our place and he put himself where we, only where we deserve to be under the wrath of God. There is a wrath of God. There is an anger of God because God is perfect and holy and we've substituted ourselves for him. We've given God a middle finger. We're like, screw you, whatever. I'll do whatever I want. There's there's punishment there. That punishment was taken by Christ. The perfect human. And what we get in exchange is salvation coming out from underneath the worry and the pain and the brokenness and the sin and the wrath of God into a place of full rest and full humanity. That's what we get. 
Church, we're going to practically walk through a lot of this stuff in our small groups and our community groups this week, living life together. How do we live this out? How do we live underneath our God-given limits? But right now, what we need to do is respond and turn to God and say, God, I've placed myself where only you deserve to be. Thank you for placing yourself only where I deserve to be. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that we are just human. And I pray that we would receive our humanity today as a gift. I pray that you would free us, all of us, to live into the limitations that you've set, the potentials that you've set, if we're going through failure or pain right now, that we, we, would, we would submit that to you and ask you, God, deliver us from temptation of trying to live life without limit. And I pray, God, that we would learn from John the Baptist that maybe we need to say that as we look in the mirror, I am not the Messiah. I am not the savior of the world. I'm not the savior of San Francisco. I'm not the savior of my company. I'm not the savior of my family. I'm not the savior of my marriage. I'm not the savior of my relationship. I'm not the Messiah. I can't carry the, the weight of the world on my shoulders because I'm human. God, that's what we say to you. And we roll over our cares to you because you are God and we are not. Thank you that you've conquered sin, death, and the devil and have invited us to live in a true freedom. Not a freedom that's manufactured by limitlessness, but a freedom that comes from being found in Christ. A freedom that comes from living into our full humanity. We receive that now as a gift. In Jesus' name, amen.